consumers think that business conditions will be a little bit better and also incomes, but they were a little bit skeptical of the labor market going forward. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin from the Conference Board and the host of this podcast series. In today's conversation, we're going to discuss the consumer, latest consumer confidence index, as well as our predictions for the economy in 2024. Joining me today is our chief economist, Dana Peterson, and the leader of our Economic Strategy and Finance Center at the Conference Board. Dana, welcome. Hi, Steve. It's always great to be here. So, Dana, we just freshly released our latest Consumer Confidence Index for November. What did we see? Well, we actually saw a little bit of an uptick in the overall measure after months and months of decline, um, and mainly reflected a brighter sentiments about expectations, although the present situation ticked down a bit. Yeah. And so, you know, there are two components to the index. One is how they're feeling currently and one what they're thinking in the next six months. And so what you're saying is it was the next six months or the the outlook that that uh, raised the uh, the overall index. Yes. Consumers think that business conditions will be a little bit better and also incomes, but they were a little bit skeptical of the labor market going forward. But still in all, the overall expectations index ticked upward. And what differences did you see demographically or geographically? Sure. Well, demographically, the biggest differences we saw were that older consumers were much happier in November than the younger ones. But, you know, we don't really have a pattern from month to month. So we kind of just have to look at it by individual month. But across income groups, almost everyone, just about everyone was feeling a little bit better in November. So maybe a little bit of holiday cheer there. And and, and you do some open-ended questions um, and usually get at, you know, what's what's still worrying people. What did you find out in November? Well, it's still the case that people are concerned about inflation overall. Prices are too high. They continue to complain about food and gasoline prices. And those are, I think, the, the two items that people pay attention to, like the gas prices, you know, very obvious. You notice that from week to week going up or down. And also food prices when people go to the grocery store. Um, people are also complaining about higher interest rates, and that certainly bites if you're looking to finance something. And then we did have more responses concerned about wars and um, uh, conflict abroad. Yeah, so that's that's been a, a consistent theme. It's it's about you know what they're experiencing in terms of borrowing and so forth. But you know it looks like consumers are continuing to spend. You know, uh, the early holiday read looks good. I mean, these are these are some big numbers we're putting up, record levels of spending. So consumer co- consumers must be confident enough and and certainly have enough cash that they can do that. I think that's the thing. Um, even though the present situation ticked down in the month, it's been consistently upbeat because in the present, most people are still working. Many people have seen increases in wages, even though their take-home income has been deflated a bit by inflation. But 
as long as people are working, they still feel confident to spend. But we are noticing that credit card use is at record levels. Um, overall, credit card uh, debt outstanding is well above a trillion dollars. And we're seeing many more people fall into delinquencies. So that's not a good sign. So even though people are spending, they're doing it on borrowed time. Well, and they're not only borrowing on their credit card, it's, um, you know, this, we just finished cyber week and we had record levels of buy now, pay later, which is another form of, of uh, consumer debt. I, you know, everybody's just sort of deferring everything and spending, you know, is that sustainable? I don't think it's sustainable. Certainly when you think about a credit card bill, a big chunk of that is going to be the interest if you're not paying down that bill every month or at least the minimum payment. And buy, buy now and pay later, I mean, that's like layaway from when I was a kid. And yes, it is deferring the inevitable. Um, and those those bills are going to come due. And certainly we risk those bills coming due when we may actually be in a recession in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's why people are starting to worry a little bit about interest rates, which they did, which you you mentioned was uh, was one of the worries. So any uh, insight on what people are saying about the holidays? I mean, we have some early results, um, sales results here uh, from retail. But uh, but what are consumers saying? Sure. Well, we have a special set of questions where we ask them what they're planning on spending for the holidays. And overall, they plan to spend less this year compared to last year, um, mainly on things that aren't gifts. So like wrapping paper and food, they're not going to spend as much on. But as we're seeing that people are willing to spend and splurge on actual gifts. Um, and still many people are looking to buy things online. So not surprising that Cyber Monday was you know, a blockbuster opportunity for businesses um, to get back into the into the black if they were in the red. And also when people think about traveling, they're still not looking to go far from home. And most of the time they're planning on driving to go visit relatives. So that also indicates that while they may want to spend on gifts, they're not really to splurge on big vacations or travel across the country or even out of the country this season. Interesting that you say that because because that's what they're saying uh, that they would do. But we just finished the largest travel day ever in U.S. airport history. TSA said that they screened more people on the Sunday after Thanksgiving than ever before in history. Biggest biggest day ever. Every seat's been filled. Um, traffic jam. So it, it's clear that people are moving. Um, uh, you know, moving around. I mean, as, as part of this and. Uh, and, and that there's an expense to that. But, that, you know, you mentioned gas prices. Gas prices have been really interesting this past year. We've talked about this before. There's not a scientific correlation here, but it just seems like every time gas prices go up, people feel a little bit more skittish. And when the assets prices come down, meaning they have more um, more discretionary income or more discretionary cash to spend, they feel a little bit better. And, you know, it's what gas prices have been down, what, for the last 60 days, and they're, they're down pretty substantially. And maybe that's contributing to this. I think so. Uh, definitely. We know that gasoline prices rose because over the summer, OPEC cut back on production. And then some of that was a little bit unwound. And so that gets reflected in the gasoline prices with a bit of a lag. And it also shows up in our inflation expectations gauge one year ahead. So that had ticked up for one month, um, and then it ticked back down. So I think that certainly not paying as much as at the pump does make people feel a little bit better about their household finances. Indeed, when we asked about household finances, both now and in the future, 
the um, sentiment was a little bit brighter. Yeah, you know, it really it really worries me a little bit. It, you know, when you look at the number of households that spend paycheck to paycheck or live paycheck to paycheck, and um, you know, it's like the majority of households. Which, gosh, I I would be a nervous wreck. It, it, but you know, they're they're using their credit card and buy now, pay later to to kind of ebb and flow this thing and provide a little bit of uh, a b- little bit of breathing room. But but gosh, that that suggests I don't know. Is there a lot more room in the economy for consumer spending to to uh, expand? I think there are definitely limits here. So so let's look at what consumers are not going to have going forward. They're going to run out of that stimulus money, and indeed, the excess savings went from two trillion down to you know in the seven hundred billions, and it's even smaller now. And so that means there's less and less of that excess savings to spend out. Again, many consumers are using their credit cards to finance their lifestyles, and the interest rate on credit cards have jumped since the Fed has raised interest rates. And all you need to do is miss one payment, and you get hit with that uh, higher interest rate, um, which could be in the 30% range. Also, many consumers are having to pay back student loan debt again, and that's really an issue for people who are between 35 and 50. And that's kind of your peak spending years. And if you don't have that money uh, to spend and to save because you're paying down debt, that suggests that you have to pull back somewhere. And I also think that the bug uh, in terms of the travel bug isn't going to be that sustainable for much longer. Many people have done a lot of their quote unquote revenge travel uh, from being uh, cooped up in the house during the pandemic. And even you mentioned the fact that, yes, many, many people travel over the holidays, but you still have many, many more people who are sitting at home. Um, and if they do go somewhere, they're driving because it's cheaper. So I think that the uh, level of spending is just not really sustainable. Yeah, you know, it it, it is. It's yeah, it, it's really interesting. You know, this whole uh um, you know this whole focus and 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 where it goes. You mentioned the the uh, the student debt repayments. Ironically, in November, the one age group where consumer confidence fell the most was kind of in that same age group that that had the you know the res- the restoration of student loan payments. I I know we don't have that precise data, but you know there's got to be something there. I think there definitely is. Um, and it's something that we should watch if we see month after month that the younger cohorts, especially that group between 35 and 50, when I think we might have that gradation if they continue to be disgruntled. You mentioned earlier about uh, that, that consumers are beginning to worry about the labor market. That's a little surprising given that unemployment still is down in you know sub four levels and, you know, pretty historically low. What what do you make of that? Well, it's really, it's not so much about the levels, but the deltas. So the unemployment rate has risen by uh, about four tenths of a percentage point. So earlier this year, it was around 3.4%. Now it's at 3.9. And so that means that people have lost their jobs. And also when we look at the JOLTS data, which, um, shows how many job openings there are and how many people quitting. Quitting is down. And in fact, we're back at the levels that we saw before the pandemic started. And there are also fewer jobs openings, uh, ads for jobs. And when we do look at the jobs that are advertising for workers, 
again, it's in those sectors that we know um, are having severe labor shortages, uh, such as healthcare and social assistance, hospitality and restaurants, and also government. And so, and also when we look at the payrolls data, those three industries are doing most of the hiring. Away from that, you're not really seeing much hiring and even you're seeing some job losses there. So I think definitely the labor market is cool that we have to look at the deltas and not so much at the levels here. So th- that that raises the issue about you know expectations of recession. This has been sort of the waiting for Godot recession. <laughs> if everybody's read the book, you know where, gosh, we've been everybody's been forecasting it, but it it just it just hasn't come yet. And we the conference board and you your group continues to forecast a short and mild recession. What are consumers saying, and how does that compare to what CEOs are telling us? Sure. So we do, we have two ways of understanding how consumers think about recession and the consumer confidence index, the consumer confidence survey. The first is the expectations gauge. Now, when that gauge is below 80, it tends to signal recession. And even though the measure ticked up in November, it's still below 80. So that means consumers still expect something negative around the corner. And then we introduced a new measure where we just explicitly asked them, do you think that there will be a recession at some point over the next 12 months? And even though the overall percentage has declined, it's still very high. It's still roughly 69, 68% of consumers still say that there might be something bad around the corner. Now, when we compare that to CEOs, it's it's not much different. Roughly 72% of CEOs say that there's going to be a short and shallow recession. And that's down from over 90% earlier this year. So the expectations of recession are lessening, but they still think that something might go wrong. Well, those are two really important numbers, you know, rough almost 70% equally between consumers and CEOs predicting recession. And those are the two groups that actually could create or avoid a recession based on their actions, right? I mean, consumer spending if you if they think there's going to be a recession, if consumer spending goes down, that's what over almost three fourths of the economy and and CEO spending, investment and capital spending and so forth and hiring, all of that's tied to expectations. So those are really still pretty high numbers and in you know important ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we've discussed the latest results of the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index. We're going to come back after a short break and talk about what it all means for the economy. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the Conference Board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem-solving for your organization. Membership at the Conference Board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a Conference Board member today by visiting www.conference-board.com. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Dana Peterson, the Chief Economist at the Conference Board. 
Okay, so Dana, taking in everything we talked about before the break and what consumers are saying, what CEOs are saying, what are your forecasts now for 2024? Let's start with the the global economy. We think that the global economy is going to grow at a slower pace next year relative to this year. So this year we're looking at growth of roughly 3.1%, but it's going to shift down to 2.5%. Now what's going to be driving that? It's basically your major economy. So that's Europe, the United States, and China. So when we look at Europe, we're looking at growth that's going to be very, very close to zero. So we're looking at growth in the euro area of just nine-tenths of a percentage point, and that's up just from seven-tenths of a percentage point. So we're talking about kind of a stagflationary scenario where they're still going to have inflation that's above targets uh, for central banks, but very little growth. In the U.S., well, I'll I'll go to the U.S. last, but certainly in China, we're looking at growth of 5.2% this year, but it's going to downshift to 4.1% next year. That is a major differential. That is more than a percentage point of lost growth in China. Now, that is not a recession, but it's very slow growth. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Well, first of all, consumers um, never had a huge rebound following the, the pandemic. And then that was mixed together with a housing crisis in China. And so many consumers lost a lot of wealth and they just weren't interested in consuming because they were engaging in what we call precautionary savings. Because there's no social safety net in China, you're pretty much on your own. Meanwhile, exports from China to the rest of the world have been challenged because the US um, and especially Europe have experienced weaker growth. And you also have these geopolitics that have been restricting growth and exports. Um, And then there's the U.S. As we mentioned earlier, we do think that there is going to be a recession in the first half of the year. It'll be short, it'll be shallow, but nonetheless, that's going to impact the overall growth rate. So we're looking at dialing down from around 2.5% growth this year in 2023 to just under 1% in 2024. Uh, The good news is we do think we'll climb out of that short and shallow recession in the second half as the Fed starts easing interest rates, um, but not an inflation returns to the 2% target. But nonetheless, um, we're probably going to have a difficult first half of the year that's going to weigh on the entire uh, growth rate for the full year. So what do you think, what, what is your projection for U.S. growth next year? So we have eight tenths for next year, just below 1%. And so that's it's negative in the first half, and then and then rebounds a bit in the second half. It, yeah. You know, so much has been made of you know, are we going to have a recession or are we not going to have a recession? You know, at at some level, you know, the difference between you know in versus out of recession is a very fine line, right? So you know, if you're anywhere near that line, it's more painful than it has been. It's slower than it's been, and regardless of whether you know the experts declare it an official recession, it's going to slow. I mean, everything points to that. And so you see this in what consumers and CEOs are telling us. And so that will have a major impact. And, and as you said, because of, you know, the globalization or the, you know, the, the interconnectivity between a lot of these nations, it, it affects everybody today. Absolutely. Now, it, uh, you know, one of the big, as you're thinking about a global you know, the big global macro numbers, 
you know, the highest growth areas are in the emerging markets, right? What do you think, what are you seeing there for next year? Yeah, so for next year, um, just about every economy is going to be downshifting. And that's a function of labor markets being challenged in many economies where you just don't have enough workers and also capital expenditures not being being a little less robust next year compared to this year. But as you said, the biggest growth drivers are still going to be China in absolute terms because 4% growth is still pretty outsized. Most advanced economies wish they could grow that fast. But also India. India is going to be seeing growth in the 5% range. And other Asian, other developing Asian economies are going to see growth around 4%, which is pretty similar to what they're going to see this year. We are going to see recoveries and growth in the Middle East and also the Gulf region, and also in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we are going to see a number of these emerging markets really outperform the mature and advanced economies next year. The big part of that is because they have young um, and available labor forces to help contribute to growth. They have emerging middle classes that are consuming and want the same things that middle classes and advanced economies want. And also, many of them are going to benefit from the reorientation of trade, some of which is leaving China and going to some of these other adjacent economies. So even looking out over the next 10 years, it's going to be emerging markets that are going to be the biggest drivers of global growth going forward. You know, it, it, as you think, it, you know, we don't study this as closely as we study other things. But, you know, as you think about all of the, um, the it, you know, the global uh, geopolitical issues, you know, whether you're talking about the Middle East or the ongoing Ukraine-Russia situation, uh, African, um, you know, the African situations, you've got a lot of displaced people, a lot of migrants moving around the world, millions and millions and millions of people. I guess on seven and a half billion or whatever the total is today, that's, that's still a relatively small amount. But but do you see the, this this whole shifting of population, this movement of population, uh, impacting any of these numbers? Yes, definitely. You could see that having an impact on on growth. It could be a blessing or a curse. So when people migrate, if they bring skills with them, then it's much easier for them. And also, if they um, have similar cultures, it's much easier for them to meld in with the culture of the of the host country. But I think we saw that, you know, many people who are becoming um, refugees and migrants aren't necessarily coming with tremendous skills or wealth. They're trying to escape warfare or drought or environmental conditions, and they are going to need a lot of resources in these new host economies. And also there are these culture class clashes that can cause upheaval politically. We saw that certainly after the, the great financial crisis when you had a lot of migration and even in recent times. So if migration and integration is done right, then this can help solve some of the labor shortages that many advanced economies are seeing. But if it's not done well, then it can lead to a lot of political upheaval and certainly big changes in regimes that can have economic implications. Yeah, and the conference board is totally nonpartisan. We don't really get into politics per se, but there is a big election here in the U.S. next year. Do you do you see foresee any impact from that election? I mean, it, it, there's no change in there wouldn't be any change or alteration in the administration until the following year. But 
But do you see any impact at all next year from the election itself? Well, it's interesting. Most Americans don't pay close attention to the election until a month before. And usually whatever surprising things, and we call it the October surprise, can impact the way elections, the direction of elections. Um, and we've noticed that, you know, social issues oftentimes matter, but the economy may also matter too, especially if there is, you know, a slowdown in growth and how quickly you can get back out of it. Um, that may influence how people vote and what policies are going to come to bear. You know, we've talked about black swans over time, which by definition are, are you know, really unforecastable. More recently, we've been talking about gray swans, which are those things that are have low probability, but are essentially forecastable. I mean, you can foresee them, you know, as potentially happening. What are some potential gray swans that could enter the forecast for next year? Sure. So I think a big one is if there's conflict in the South China Sea um, and conflict over Taiwan, certainly that would involve mainland China, Taiwan, but it would also bring in a number of other Asian economies in the region, as well as the U.S. And we know that right now, globally, politically, and even trade-wise, you're seeing these nodes appear, this multipolar economy where, where countries are pairing up together and joining forces and creating not only economic alliances, but political alliances. And so something that could be a local issue can become very global overnight. And certainly economic impacts would affect things like trade and certainly trade in technology and computer chips, um, which is something that uh, Taiwan is a major export of. Yeah, and you know any of these things can trigger protectionism, and uh, and less trade is bad for growth, uh, for sure, and it makes goods and services more expensive over time. So it's not a good thing. So there are knock-on effects too, which you you know you've talked about over time. Absolutely. Yeah. Now you know one of the things that really helped to drive GDP during certain periods of time in the past has been labor productivity and that's it's really technical and you know you but but at, at a at a very simple level it means you get more output for the same amount of labor the same same labor hour ai is is out there as a next big step up in um in digitalization in in digital progress and you know we've talked in the past about the potential for ai to impact positively impact productivity and hence GDP growth. What are you thinking the possibilities are for 24? Sure, I think the possibilities are immense and certainly innovations in AI can happen a lot sooner than we than we expect. Certainly um, we know that, for example, the, you know, the leaders of one of the biggest AI companies thought that we would get to where we are in 10 years and it took five. <laughs> so, um, we could see some really big advances. I think what's going to be key is that a lot of companies are going to be looking to set up their own AI platforms that are internal to them, where they can leverage their own data and their own information without risk of it getting outside. Um, and also using that to help address some of the labor shortages that they're experiencing, but also to upskill many of their, their workers, such that their workers can use AI as an assistant to them such that they can become more creative and innovative in other areas. 
Yeah. So, the, you know, great hope. The question is, you know, will it impact us next year? And your point is, I don't know. I mean, maybe it could because these things can happen very quickly, but certainly over the long run, is your point. Absolutely. And even when we talk to our own members, they're thinking about AI and how to integrate it into their businesses and how they can use AI to help enhance their own productivity and to um, harness the power of their own data. So this is already in the train. It's really, can companies adopt the technology fast enough and get everybody trained enough and make sure that it's secure enough such that 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 they don't put themselves at risk from using it? Yeah, and then you have the displacement factor. You know, the job, there's jobs going to be created and jobs destroyed in the process, and net net, it should be positive, but it doesn't always work in a very linear fashion, which is, you know, another unknown, I guess. You know, the la last subject that you and I have talked about every every CEO, every C-suite member that you and I talk to talks about the whole energy transition, carbon-free 2050, and all the efforts and investment they're making to prepare for that. What do you see the impact on all of that in 24? Well, it's tough to know. I mean, right now, as we're speaking, there's talk about backlash. But I think the message that we've been trying to tell folks is that the energy transition is going to be lengthy and it's going to happen in fits and starts. And you're going to have periods of time where supply and demand are going to ebb and flow, but it's going to happen. And so I think the key thing next year is that what would be really important is if governments can work more closely with corporations who are integral to this transition and listen to each other and come up with plans for how we're going to get from A to B and how we can make sure the transition isn't tremendously inflationary or um, burdensome, especially for the consumer and for taxpayers. So I think that's probably the next phase of this in order to move forward, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see is right. And, you know, they're talking trillions of dollars worth of investment over time here. So depends on when that happens, how it happens and, and all the rest. But uh, but clearly this uh, this will have an impact over time, won't it? Absolutely. And certainly during the transition, it's going to be costly because we have to invest in infrastructure to support the increased use of renewables. We have to support, we have to spend money on the inputs for renewables. In fact, I saw an article about I, I um, salt as a replacement for lithium in batteries. And that'd be tremendous um, if we could match the power of lithium with salt, which is very plentiful and is much less of a rare earth. But again, you know, we really need these big technological breakthroughs and we need to work together to get there. Well, we're gonna to have to leave it there. Dana Peterson, as always, it was great to be with you. Thanks, Steve. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, with everybody in Economist you know. I'm Steve Odlin. And this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.